2019 is a new year. With every new year comes new beginnings and resolutions. I've never been one for resolutions or new beginnings because the way I look at it, if I want to change something about my life, I don't need to wait until it's a new year to do so. But what I have tended to do, at least until recently, is reflect on life, think about family, friends, and associates who didn't get to make it another year, and be both thankful that I did make it another year and continue to not take the time I'm given on earth for granted, living the life that those who are no longer with us didn't get a chance to live. Tomorrow is promised to no one. The past couple of years though, a part of me has wondered what's next for this country I call home, and it's a bit unnerving. Feelings about this country can be somewhat complicated. This is a country that both allows for a degree of opportunity and liberty, and has denied the fullness of that opportunity and liberty for many of its own people due to the color of their skin or ethnic background or other points of difference. This is a country that generations of black Americans and other persons of color have fought and died for, yet the country they've sacrificed for also let them down. So the idea of being proud to be American is a bit complicated, yet for better or for worse, this is home. And with each passing year since the election of Donald John Trump, the worst always seems yet to come. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. started 2019 with a protracted partial shutdown of federal government that began last month and is now the longest shutdown in U.S. history. As of this recording, Donald Trump, bolstered by conservative pundits Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter, refuses to sign any bill without his $5.7 billion for the southern border wall, a southern border wall that a majority of Americans don't want, that Mexico was supposed to pay for and will not do what he promises it will do. That wouldn't necessarily be a problem, as bills to reopen government have the support of both chambers of Congress. But Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader and terrible human who has done more to subvert democracy in the past few years than just about anyone else, won't allow the bill to the floor for a vote. If Trump is going to veto a bill without the full funding for a border wall anyway, why is McConnell afraid of a Senate vote? Meanwhile, thousands of federal government workers are on unpaid furlough, still others are labeled essential workers and mandated to work, such as TSA, but are not getting paid. Overall, over 800,000 civil servants are being affected by the shutdown. Once government is reopened, these workers are likely to get back pay, but as of right now, they are not receiving their steady paychecks. And not only that, Trump canceled their wage increase for 2019, which adds insult to injury. Many Americans live paycheck to paycheck, a result of this exactly, wages not rising with inflation. The shutdown means falling behind on rent and utilities. Landlords and mortgage companies don't take IOUs. It means damaged credit. And in the U.S., credit is everything. It makes a difference from procuring transportation, to finding a decent place to live, to even, in some cases, finding another job. 
And if the shutdown lasts longer than 30 days, these civil servants and their families will lose health insurance too. These are not simply the bureaucracy or Democrats, Trump implying we shouldn't care about their well-being anyway because they're the wrong ideology. These are real-life people with real-life families, and it not only affects them, it affects private businesses that depend on government being open. Businesses who cater to government workers, companies that depend on government contracts. And if you're one of those folks more worried about your 401k than the fate of civil servants, take note that this will affect you too, if it hasn't already. A government shutdown and the loss of spending power for so many Americans is going to damage the economy, the very economy Trump claims he's improving. Trump addressed the nation on January 8th, spewing misdirection and outright lies regarding refugees he is aiming to keep out with his wasteful wall, as well as the impact of refugees to the economy, crime, and even pitting immigrants against racial minorities such as Black Americans and Latino Americans. For their part, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer led a rebuttal address with government workers flanking them and refocusing the nation on the waste of the wall and those Trump is harming by failing to give up his vertical dream. As of this recording, Trump is eyeing declaring a national emergency, using unspent disaster relief funds, including money that could be used to help people rebuild from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, remember that? Or the wildfires in California to begin building his vanity wall. Again, the wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. I'm not going to let you forget that part. This action would free Congress to pass an appropriations bill to fully fund government without including funding for the wall. But it will also mean congressional Democrats will likely sue to keep Trump from going through with the national emergency to build the wall, a national emergency that isn't an emergency at all. I've mentioned this before, I'm sure, but it's worth reiterating. Trump is feeding the American people untrue, divisive, and hateful propaganda meant to stir up xenophobic fervor and drum up support for his wall. But fear does not equal facts. According to the American Immigration Council, higher immigration rates are associated with lower crime rates. Immigrants are less likely than U.S.-born Americans to be behind bars, and immigrants are less likely than U.S.-born Americans to engage in criminal behavior. And while the American Immigration Council is an immigration advocacy group, several peer-reviewed studies have borne out these conclusions. And what about these fears over MS-13 and violent immigrant teenagers? According to a study out of the University of Texas at Austin by Christopher Salas Wright and a team of co-authors, immigrant teenagers are less likely to use alcohol and illicit drugs and less likely to engage in drug-related and violent crime than U.S.-born teens. And what about national security and terrorism from ISIS operatives sneaking in through the southern border? According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, the vast majority, two-thirds, of terrorist acts are committed by right-wing groups, much more than left-wing groups or Islamic terror groups. Trump and his supporters like to trot out anecdotal incidents to support the notion that Americans, especially white Americans, should fear immigrants. Cases such as the Kate Steinle incident or the recent killing of police officer Ronell Singh 
but for every Jose Inez Garcia Zarate or Gustavo Perez Arigata, there are many others like Nicholas Cruz, Alex Fields, Demetrios Pogotsis, Dylan Roof, Robert Bowers, or Gregory Bush. And unlike Trump's fear-mongering, there are empirical facts, meaning there is actual, measurable, verifiable evidence backing up the idea that homegrown white supremacist terror is a much bigger danger than anything that would require a costly, useless border wall. You see, this is not simply government gridlock or typical bickering between the parties. This is essentially a coup. From the long-term government shutdown due to a Trump tantrum to actions of GOP-dominant state legislatures to blunt the results of the 2018 midterms, cutting the powers of incoming governors and other Democratic elected officials in Michigan and Wisconsin, not abiding by the wishes of voters to allow felons to vote in Florida. GOP officials at many levels are aiming to disregard the wishes of their constituents, the American people, to do what they want to do anyways, and to hell with the wishes of voters. This is undemocratic. This is a coup. And the primary constituency, at this point, the only constituency that is fully on board with these practices are white evangelical Christians. Those who live as if they don't believe what they preach, but expect the rest of us normies to live by it, since they, by their faith, think they have some kind of -of get-out-of-jail-free card. That is not how faith is supposed to work. Faith without works is dead. James 2.17 Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Luke 6.46 That's not how this works. You own this. The actions and the consequences. With it being 2019, this means we're getting close to presidential election season. 2020 is just around the corner. Many Democrats and progressives, and these aren't always one and the same, mind you, they're debating over who should be the Democratic frontrunner in 2020. Should it be Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Sherrod Brown? Should Hillary Clinton run again? Oh, God, no. Someone else. Does it need to be a white male? Should a woman or a person of color be on the ticket? If so, where should they be on the ticket? I have my personal favorites, but to be honest, I'm much more concerned about the strategy than who will fill the slots. And intertwined in that is the general direction of the Democratic Party. Should it move more toward the right or should it move toward the left? Will the Democratic Party becoming more progressive alienate centrists or disaffected Republicans? Will the Democrats moving more rightward leave progressives to stay home or vote third party like some did in 2016? Who is going to run isn't all that important. Who they will try to appeal to does. We need to get over the idea that we should even bother to listen to Trump Republicans. Trumpism is essentially a cult where reason is not being listened to. There is such thing as objective truth. And Trump lies every day, all day, with every tweet, every press conference, every public address, every rally. But because he speaks to the primal fears of his base, that somehow the people they distrust, and in some cases even hate the most, are getting one over on them, and Trump will fix it for them, and make their bigoted feelings socially acceptable. Objective facts, logic, and reason will not reach them. Them feeling the pain of Trump's policies will not reach them. New ideas will not reach them. They are not reachable. We need to get over it. Can Trump supporters become more enlightened? Sure, it's definitely possible. 
But that's not going to happen with campaign slogans or the right platform or even the right candidates. Those are personal decisions, gut-level transformations, and often happen over time given the right personal circumstances. We shouldn't hinge 2020 on these inward processes. We need to use our energy where it can make the most impact. Many of the most successful campaigns during the 2018 midterms, such as that of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, focus more on recruiting people who normally don't vote to go out and vote. That 40%, give or take, of citizens who are eligible to vote but don't vote, that is a plurality of eligible voters, more than those who voted for Trump or Clinton in the last presidential election. Focusing on non-voters, it's a much more fruitful use of our time than bending over backwards to get people to vote for Democrats who won't do so in a million years. Focus on the Democrats' already diverse base and on non-voters. This is a better bet than focusing on deprogramming Trump's base. And what will the Democratic Party run on? They should run on common sense ideas. Universal health care is a huge one. No longer tying health care to employment is huge for individuals, families, and employers. Include in that universal coverage comprehensive mental health coverage. Equal access to quality public schools, free or subsidized college, and student debt elimination. Fact-based curriculum. Teach science in science class, not religion. Teach history in history class, not self-serving myths. Bring on consumer and labor regulations. Make sure the minimum wage is an actual living wage. And let's get rid of corporate welfare. In a capitalist society, if you own a business, it should rise and fall on your ingenuity, your decisions, and the rest of us shouldn't have to bail out your company so you can pay yourself or your executive board multi-million dollar bonuses. At the same time, let's be sure to fund public assistance. A post-industrialized country should not have people living in horrible conditions, including our nation's children, with no way to escape poverty. Let's actually fix our immigration system so it can be run on facts and not fear. Immigration can be orderly without lacking in common sense. Combating terror, including the real terror threats here at home by right-wing extremists. Accountability for authority, from police to politicians, equal rights, and non-discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, religion or lack thereof, national origin, as well as race, ethnicity, and sex. This is not an attack on the First Amendment. Feel, think, and say what you want. If you want to be ignorant, do you. But your ignorance should not infringe on the rights and liberties of other people. I probably haven't covered everything, but you get the idea. And the money is there. Don't let anyone tell you different. It's less about raising taxes, though we need to get over the stupid idea that taxes are bad. But really, it's more about allocation. To be honest, I'm not holding my breath that the Democrats will run on this platform, but it would serve them well to move in a more progressive direction and not succumb to Republican scare framing like, oh my gosh, socialists or taxes. Call it what you want because labels don't pay the bills or put food on the table. This is investing in our own country, investing in our own people, and making this country great for all of us. As a history buff, I really got into the podcast series Bagman by Rachel Maddow from MSNBC. 
Bagman is about the resignation of the late Spiro Agnew, who was President Richard Nixon's first vice president. I highly recommend you listen to it. It includes interviews with people who were involved with the criminal investigation into Agnew on both sides. It's also instructive for today, in a sense, due to the current investigations into the White House and other political officials. It came up in the podcast that because Agnew was a socially conservative demagogue who had an extremely fervent base of supporters, he was viewed as being even more dangerous than Nixon. For investigators, the possibility of a President Agnew lit a fire underneath them to work against the clock to get him removed before Nixon, since this was also happening concurrent with the Watergate scandal that would later take down Nixon. And it's thought that Nixon knew that Agnew was a bit of a shield for him, as his presence as the guy who was a heartbeat away from the presidency made Nixon's political enemies think twice about removing him. I still stand by my earlier prediction that if Donald Trump is still president in 2020, he will be reelected. The continued erosion of democratic norms, the divisive rhetoric from the Oval Office, the sustained voter suppression in the states, and subverting of the will of the people, as well as the support for emergent anti-democratic regimes in places like Brazil, bolstering Trump's support internationally. All these steps are solidifying authoritarian power by Donald Trump and the GOP. There's no telling how much worse it will get between now and next year. But if Trump still holds executive office, it will get worse, potentially much worse than we can ever imagine. That said, it's hard to say what will happen in 2019. With whispers of Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, resigning in the near future, there is speculation that the Mueller investigation is winding down. With that, there is the distinct possibility that Donald Trump could be publicly named as a co-conspirator as a result of the Mueller investigation and may get entangled in state investigations as well. He could be impeached and removed, Though this is a difficult task, even if the Democrats had both chambers of Congress, which they don't, he might decide to resign. Some speculate he might take this route, depending on what Robert Mueller and other investigators have on him or others close to him, such as his children. I don't think he's inclined to resign. But then again, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to what could happen to lead Trump to decide that resigning is a better option than writing it out. But my thought is that if Trump departs before next year's general election, it's more likely it will be by resignation than by impeachment and removal. For what it's worth, what needs to happen is that if Trump goes down, Vice President Mike Pence needs to go too. Like Agnew for Nixon, Pence is Trump's shield. Yes, Mike Pence, the guy standing silently next to Trump with a Bible in his hand while he spews a torrent of lies. Yeah, that guy. Reason being that a president, Mike Pence, is the greater danger to our country's democracy than Trump's acting as president. While Pence doesn't have the charisma or demagogic following of Agnew, even his own state doesn't really like him, Pence's zealotry makes progressives, myself included, concerned about the long-term consequences of Trump leaving office before the 2020 election. Let's talk a bit about the vice president. Who is this guy? And why should we be vigilant? Mike Pence hails from Columbus, Indiana, a city in the southern part of the state about 45 minutes away from Indianapolis. He grew up in an Irish Catholic family. He went to Hanover College, a private liberal arts school. And while in college, he was drawn to evangelical Christianity. And with becoming born again, 
he became more politically and socially conservative. He later married his wife, Karen, earned his law degree from Indiana University, and after some time in private practice, became a conservative radio talk show host from 1994 through 1999. Pence made forays into running for political office in the late 1980s, but was unsuccessful, but later found success in 2000, being elected to Congress as a House rep and serving from 2001 through 2013. Then he became governor of Indiana in 2013 until becoming vice president in 2017. Pence has been known for holding conservative views, expressing those views politically, and living an extremely conservative lifestyle. He has stated he will not dine with women alone, even for business matters. He will not attend functions with alcohol without his wife, and he calls his wife mother. He has stated that abortion should be punishable by death and supported government funding for gay conversion therapy. He has stated as late as the year 2000 that smoking doesn't cause cancer. He has voiced skepticism regarding global warming, and while in Congress, he voted against the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. His anti-environmental regulation stances also extended to his governorship. Here's one example. East Chicago, Indiana is a small city of 30,000 people just outside the much larger city of Chicago, Illinois. East Chicago's demographics are mostly Black and Latino, with a median household annual income of $27,000, less than half the national average of $59,000 a year. East Chicago was once a huge steel town, and smelting facilities and other factories were commonplace in and around East Chicago for several decades throughout the 20th century. Like a number of other northern cities, East Chicago experienced white flight and suburbanization in the 1950s and 60s, but the decline of the steel industry beginning in the 1970s, leading to layoffs and later closures of the plants, led to the city's economic and population downturn. In the early 1980s, it was discovered that the factories that dotted East Chicago and surrounding areas in Northwest Indiana were found to be leaching lead and other harmful chemicals into their surrounding soil. In 1985, the EPA tested neighborhoods in this region and found soil contaminated with lead. According to the World Health Organization, Lead is a cumulative toxic substance that affects multiple systems in the body. Once lead enters the body, it is distributed to your organs, and the body will store lead in teeth and bones where it can accumulate over time with additional exposure. Adults exposed to lead are at increased risk of high blood pressure and kidney damage. For pregnant women, it can also lead to miscarriage, stillbirth, premature births, and low birth weight since stored lead in bones is remobilized into the blood during pregnancy. But young children in particular are especially vulnerable to the effects of lead, since their bodies absorb four to five times as much lead per volume as adults. Severe lead poisoning can lead to seizures, coma, and death. Children who survive severe lead poisoning can be left with brain damage and behavioral disorders. Even at lower levels of lead exposure, children can suffer from low IQ, attention-related disorders, learning disabilities, growth delays, hearing impairment, and aggression. There are no safe levels of lead for humans, 
and since it accumulates in the bones and teeth, it is extremely difficult to expel lead from the body. Lead is a pretty big deal. The discovery of lead contamination in the soil in 1985 led to three East Chicago neighborhoods being declared a Superfund site, meaning it is designated for environmental cleanup by the EPA. But while the government knew of the problem, there was very little focus on actually cleaning up these sites. And as the plants continued to close, many left toxic waste behind to leak into the ground and water supply. The residents were not warned of the extent of the toxic waste or the danger it could pose to their health. Then in 2009, it was discovered that some neighborhoods in East Chicago, including a local housing project, had dangerous toxic levels of lead and arsenic in the soil and water. The public housing project was called the West Calumet Housing Complex and was built on top of the site of a closed lead smelting plant in the 1970s. This environmental finding eventually led to the closure of the complex and scattering of complex residents to other areas of the region. It also led to a lawsuit by neighborhood residents against the East Chicago Housing Authority, alleging racial discrimination because they had been forced to live in communities with known environmental toxins, which led to a settlement in 2016. The sites are still being cleaned up, which has led to tension between the EPA and residents, some of whom feel the slow cleanup is an additional example of systemic racial discrimination. In 2016, while Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, the mayor of East Chicago, Anthony Copeland, requested an emergency disaster declaration for the city due to the extent of the contamination and needing additional funds for cleanup. The city had already spent over a million dollars for disaster cleanup and was experiencing a budget shortfall due to declining population, hastened by the environmental disaster and resulting condemnation of local housing in the area. An emergency disaster declaration would free up additional state and potentially federal funds for the cleanup. But Pence refused to issue the declaration, arguing that $200,000 was already allotted by the state for relocation and lead testing, and that should be enough. When it came to actually fixing the problem, Pence left the drained city on its own and the residents to deal with the poison in their taps and backyards. His actions were much like that of his compatriot Rick Snyder in Michigan during Flint's water crisis. Unless you believe this is a partisan problem or an ideological dispute, where a Republican isn't going to help East Chicago, a mostly Democratic city, no, that's not it. Because the next governor, Eric Holcomb, another Republican, issued the declaration as one of his first executive orders once taking office. Pence is just a dick. And speaking of that, Pence also signed a religious freedom law while governor, allowing individuals and companies to use as a legal defense that their free exercise of religion has been or will be substantially burdened. This meant that this would allow individuals and businesses to engage in discriminatory practices, such as not serving same-sex couples at a restaurant or doctors refusing to take on LGBTQ patients as long as they argued that laws against this behavior infringed on their religious liberty. This was a response to Obergefell v. Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage nationwide, and other cases that involved discrimination against LGBTQ people and same-sex couples, and pushed by extremist religious right groups such as the American Family Association, Advance America, and the Indiana Family Institute. After boycotts, 
millions of dollars being lost to the state and businesses refusing to set up shop in Indiana. An amendment was passed a week later that provided protections for LGBTQ tenants, customers, and employees. Oh wait, there's more. Pence signed a bill in Indiana in 2013 defunding Planned Parenthood as a way to fight abortion rights. This law had the effect of leaving mostly rural southeastern Indiana without any HIV testing facilities, making it much more difficult for residents in that area to keep up with testing for HIV infection. The thing was, the Planned Parenthood that was in the region didn't even perform abortions, which was the argument for defunding the organization. But this bill led to its closure. As most of you probably know, Planned Parenthood does a lot more than perform abortions, but this is often lost on anti-abortion advocates. That or they just don't care. So Scott County, which is a small rural county in Southern Indiana, just north of Louisville, Kentucky, experienced an HIV outbreak in 2014. This outbreak is thought to primarily be due to the opioid crisis, which has been huge in Southeast Indiana and other parts of the Midwest. And it didn't help that the state had banned the use of agonist medication-based opioid addiction treatment, such as the use of naltrexone to help wean addicts off heroin. Mike Pence opposed needle exchanges, which helped to curb the spread of HIV because he believed they encouraged drug abuse, despite evidence to the contrary. In 2015, he finally capitulated to allowing needle exchanges in Scott County after he said he went home and prayed about it. But at the same time, he signed into law a bill that made the possession of a syringe with the intent to commit an offense with a controlled substance, in other words, the possession of a needle in order to do drugs, a felony, when it had previously been a misdemeanor, and the penalty would be up to two and a half years in prison. So he pretty much rendered the needle exchange useless. And as vice president, he has not been any better. He has provided a cover of religiosity over Trump's despicable actions, has parroted and defended him. He invoked walking with civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis to defend Donald Trump's comments on Charlottesville legitimizing neo-Nazis. Both sides. Pence also supported Joe Arpaio, former Arizona sheriff who was convicted of contempt of court for refusing to stop targeting and torturing Latino immigrants. Pence called Arpaio a tireless champion of the rule of law. This was after Arpaio was convicted in a court of law of contempt. Pence has also provided his own brand of theater by using taxpayer dollars to attend, then walk out of an Indianapolis Colts game after players were kneeling during the national anthem in protest of police brutality against Black Americans. So that's a bit of a window into who we're dealing with. An ideological conservative, through and through, who is willing to endanger the health, safety, and lives of those he is supposed to represent because of his judgmental and toxic theology. And there is no separation of church and state with him. According to the book, The Shadow President, by Mike D'Antonio, and Peter Eisner. Pence sees himself and other evangelical Christians as blessed but persecuted. And they go on to say that, quote, hope for the future resided in his faith that as chosen people, 
conservative evangelicals would eventually be served by a leader whom God would enable to defeat their enemies and create a Christian nation, end quote. Here's the thing to remember. Donald Trump, at his core, is an opportunist. He is not a dyed-in-a-wool conservative, nor a true believer evangelical Christian. Does he hold racist and bigoted views? Of course he does. And despite what his MAGA fans will tell you, this is not new to his foray into presidential politics. He's been this way for decades, from his being investigated by the U.S. Justice Department for violations of the Fair Housing Act in the 1970s, to his demonization of the Central Park Five from the case's genesis in 1989, to their exoneration in 2002 and multi-million dollar settlement with the city of New York in 2014. But above all, Trump is about money and admiration. He has no problem saying or doing anything that will get him cash and encourage his devoted base to love him even more. But Pence is a different story. Unlike Trump, Pence is a true believer. And unlike Trump, Pence comes off as stable and sane in comparison. He has the ear of conservative billionaire donors like the Koch brothers, even more so than Trump. And all of that makes him worse. Mike Pence is an extremist theocrat, a theocrat who really likes money from lobbyists, a theocrat who serves mammon while claiming God, but a theocrat nevertheless. And unless the Mueller investigation can uncover enough evidence to also force out Pence, Trump being removed from office might mean some stability internationally, but domestically, we just might be worse off. And that's saying something. Trump could leave office this year. But if so, this could truly be the beginning of an American nightmare. Here's the 2019. Cheers. In our society, conspiracy theories are running rampant as there's a segment of our population that believes that the truth about everything from mass murder to vaccines is being hidden from us. Along those lines, Nick and John explore the answer to this question, is someone hiding the cure to cancer? In the latest, from Stranger Still. It's a thoughtful and fascinating episode, so be sure to check it out. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Or go to strangerstillshow.com for this and other episodes. And for all the great podcasts and other well-done and entertaining content on the Flying Machine Network, visit flyingmachine.network. Thank you very much for listening to Potstorer Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss an episode. Also, January's Patreon bonus episode is a great reflection on 2018. Plus, I give some behind-the-scenes thoughts on your favorite episodes from the past year. If you aren't already a patron of Flying Machine, you'll want to get on that. Go to patreon.com slash flyingmachine, and for just $5 a month, you can download bonus episodes from all Flying Machine shows. And that is both current bonuses, plus our entire back catalog of bonus content. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future, because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine! <laughs>